Hello, K2H. So we talk a lot about, you know, this increasingly racially sensitive world we live in, and we don't talk enough about uh, racialized bodies in terms of dance. And so today I'm really, really happy happy to have uh, Professor Lorenzo Perillo here to talk about his new book and also the concept of uh, racialized bodies and specifically Filipino bodies. In this case, we're going to talk about uh, choreographing and color is the book. And first, I'm going to introduce Professor Perillo with his background before we start unpacking it and talking about this, uh, this really interesting topic. So Professor Perillo is the assistant professor of dance here at UH Manoa. Uh, concentrations in hip hop studies and dance technique, dance and performance theory, movement analysis, kinesiology, anatomy for dancers. Dr. Perillo pre previously taught at UC Berkeley, UCLA, California State University, uh, Dominguez Hills, Cornell, and in 2019, he received the Campus-Wide Teaching Recognition Program Award for Teaching Excellence at the University of Illinois in Chicago. His research program award for excuse me, his research interests include dance and performance studies, race and racialization, Philippinex and transnational Asian American identities, Pacific Island socialization, popular culture and post-colonialism, immigration, gender, sexuality, queer of color and feminist theories and methodologies, environmental justice, diasporic identity and higher education and global hip hop. That's just to name a few things of this complex um, character I am introducing. Dr. Perillo, thank you for coming to K2H. Thank you for having me. Thank you for hosting. This is great. It's great uh, um, to be here. Thank you. So I'm going to start with um, your presence being a Filipino-American body here talking to me because we're talking about dance and dance, the corporeality of, of how we present ourselves in context to, you know, this kind of very um, commercialized world of dance that most people are associate dance with. And then there's the cultural, culturalized dance bodies. Um, so I wanted to flow with the what maybe what cultural context you come from first before we unpack uh, what your ideas are on in your, in your book about hip hop and, and its culturalization. Oh, great, thank you. That's a great question. Yeah, I think context um, matters a lot. And for me, you know, I was um, born here in Hawaii. Um, my parents are both from the Philippines. My, my dad is from um, Bicol, province and my mom is from Bulacan um, and they immigrated here through the um, U.S. military through Navy recruitment. Um, I was actually raised in San Diego um, so my understanding of the Filipino community here um, in Hawaii was is kind of a mixed um, understanding um, but I think I it, it sort of impacts the way that I look at how dance is a Dance in, in multiple communities can be a way of preserving our culture, connecting us to our heritage, um, documenting our history. And also um, for, for me, my interest is in social critique. So criticizing the material and um, political conditions that we live in. And so um, to be here in the theater and dance uh, department at, at UH Manoa, is it's an honor and it's also a great opportunity to kind of continue that 
that process and that education and, and, and pay it forward because I've had some great teachers in the past. Um, I, I returned here uh, to, after actually, I started dancing informally in um, family parties. I'm sure, I'm sure you've, you've had um, your, your taste of those. Um, we used to have a lot in the backyards or in the garage in Southern California. And, um, and that sort of became a way that I um, learned how to socialize with others, you know? Um, and, and in that you learn sort of racial and gender and ethnic sort of relationships. Um, and so I, I actually joined a, a dance team in high school. Um, I was part of a, a color guard or tall flags team. I followed my sister. So I give a, a lot of credit to my sister, uh, my big sister, my Ate Sherry, uh, for following her after school to this dance practice. And, and through that, I sort of learned that, you know, dancing isn't quote unquote for guys, right? Or it's rare to see uh, men dance. And that was sort of changing as um, hip hop and street dance became more institutionalized within educational systems. It became more acceptable for men to dance, for boys to dance. Um, and that- When you say, wait, let's put, when you say not acceptable for boys to dance, do you mean specifically in performance in, in that world? Because when you go to like clubs and you go street dancing, it's, I, I feel like it's not really, you know, exclusive to women. It's always been kind of a very equal space. Yeah, I'm, I'm institutionalized in sort of um, in the formal resource spaces that dance ha has available to them, like dance teams okay. or dance organizations um, on campuses and high schools. They were they were they were mostly um, sort of the men. The boys were not necessarily. They didn't actually have boys in, on the team for color guard or for for drill or for dance in the early 90s it wasn't okay. until the 90s that that actually started happening and so you know i think in part that kind of i learned some of those and you probably i mean you'd be great to kind of jump in here in terms of gender roles that dance was okay if it was for a heteronormative or hetero kind of sexual purpose but dance to express your your masculinity in another way probably it just it wasn't necessarily the same as sports it didn't have the same right, the same um legitimacy that sports did in sort of expressing your boyhood um so let me ask you this wait sorry to just you know because it's interesting that you say that your strongest influence is from the family like going dancing in in, in you know your social family gatherings. Um, so do we kind of have to distinguish the difference between that type of like um, casual, it's not even, so, so I was gonna say street dancing, but that's not even that, that's very performative, but just dancing within friends, that, is that a different category from what we're talking about on the kind of the, the gendered um, dance roles that we expect of dancing bodies, you know? I, you know, like I do, I definitely distinguish between informal and formal spaces okay. because um, you have to attend to the material resources that are there. You know, the casual, the crew, the dance crews that um, boys form and street dance crews or hip hop dance crews, they don't have the, you know, they don't necessarily have rehearsal space that's carved out for them. They don't have studios and mirrors and, you know, they don't have those sort of um, uh, material resources that 
allow them to succeed at, um, necessarily in, in contrast to some of the more formal spaces that other forms of dance might have. And I think for me, it was also, it wasn't until college because I grew up in like, uh, in a predominantly, a, a very diverse, um, a diverse context in Mira Mesa in San Diego. Um, it wasn't until college that I realized uh, or that I started learning about, you know, what does it mean to do that same practice in a predominantly white institution, right? Or in an institution that's grappling at the precipice between liberal multiculturalism, where everyone is, you know, celebrated and everybody has sort of a parade or a month, and then, um, you know, post-racialism or colorblindness, where, you know, affirmative action was being removed from educational policies in California in the late 90s. And that produced these very interesting racial dynamics for that students then embodied on the stage and that we then took to our dance crews or to our dance companies because we were also still trying to figure out, you know, and try to figure out like, what does it mean to, um, to embody your identity, your identity in terms of race and gender and sexuality, and then as a group, right? Or, and then in relationship to a, um, to a tradition like black dance or hip hop. And so this was a really interesting time because um, I started working with Filipino community more, um, culture nights, uh, Filipino culture nights are these annual student productions for two or three hours that um, uh, student groups prepare for a year. They started um, in the 60s and they sort of uh, generated and proliferated across the um, mostly West Coast to sort of archive and express Filipino identity in song, music, dance, and theater. Um, because there were no places, there was not a place in the curriculum in ethnic studies and gender studies and um, in theater and dance for Filipino culture, dance, music, song, drama. And so this alternative space, this third space became a, a place for Filipinos to find, to find meaning in, in their um, sort of, uh, in sort of a coming of age sort of way. And, and at the same time, grapple with the, the issues of modernity or tradition or multiculturalism and post-racialism um, through their dancing and through their script and song and writing. And so that was a very formative time for me because even though I was a biology major undergrad, I was spending like 80, 80 hours a week dancing, 80 hours a week choreographing, um, you know? Oh, you're what, what kind of dance did you do? So, you know, um, the Filipino community had a, a kind of a calendar of events and different dances, um, folkloric dances um, that have been canonized from um, during the Colo American colonial period, like um, different Spanish dances, okay. the Tinic Ling, like different um, different suites for that were popularized through the Bayaniha and the Filipino dance, the Philippine Dance Company. Um, but also, um, and I write about this in the book, there were, uh, there were increasingly more experimental uh, approaches to expressing Filipino identity in dance and song. So there were, um, you know, increasingly modernized yeah. uh, folk dances. Is, can um, I ask you if that is in 
is it is it controversial or is that something that um, represents the progress of of culture in modernizing and having because I had this conversation I don't know um, I, I'm aware of this one I forgot the name of that um, group but it was a like hip hop but based on some traditional um, Filipino dance I think you must oh, know that. Yes. Uh, so, um, you know, the question for older people who tradi traditionalists who think that you should maintain that kind of classical Filipino dance as opposed to like, okay, hip hop is something that that like street dance don't mix it up with our stuff. But on the other hand, it's like, wow, this is really interesting. You're you're meshing um, the old and the new the culture and, and modernity and all these things. So there are a couple of ways to look at this. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, you know, I think it's really important to, again, um, ground ourselves when we're analyzing dance, ground ourselves in the context and the message and the function. So, you know, every instance of hybridity or fusion dance forms is going to have a different, I think, net <laughs> outcome, right? And yeah. so for me, you know, in the context of, uh, of the PCNs in the late 90s, during this time when Filipinos were removed from affirmative action and ed educational segregation was, was taking on a new kind of post-racial moment. Um, it was really important to point back to the moments of resistance that our, um, that Filipino history had and how American colonialism sort of um, erased those from our education and you know, by teaching us English, by teaching us, by canonizing and standardizing Filipino dance forms, sort of teaching us that um, that colonial lesson, the benevolent tutelage was that these these dance forms are all equal, equally, you know, equally measured or equally afforded time on the stage. When actually these these represented real people, ethnic minorities or ethnic um, groups in the Philippines that may or may not have changed their repertoire, changed their dancing. And so, um, and so it was such an interesting time because at the same time that we were sort of dealing with this relationship between Filipino diasporic and Filipino in the Philippines um, communities, we were also thinking about how within the diaspora, there were different stereotypes, right? So, um, and some of the artists that I've um, interviewed for my book have talked about this, you know, they, they were seen as model minorities, you know, even though the model minority is typically, I would say, uh, maybe addressed to East Asians, yeah. um, not necessarily Filipinos, but there were Filipinos that had received that model minority stereotypes of being, um, you know, naturalized, uh, naturally good at academics and math right. and science. And so, so dancing yeah. seemed counter to that, right? Having rhythm or being good at um, at the creative arts was seen as the revert, the opposite opposite end of the spectrum. And at the same time, there were other, you know, kind of contradictory stereotypes that Filipinos are natural mimics or um, natural performers and singers and dancers, especially of American uh, medleys or American um, styles. And so these stereotypes began to I, I began to kind of really think through like what how can we move away from these um you know these uh stereotypes and really get to the heart of the matter and so these questions of of authenticity or whether moder modernizing 
um, quote unquote traditional dances is good or bad, I think ultimately we wanna look at the material and the political and social conditions and how does it transform them or not? Exactly, you know? I think um, that's a good segue into trying to back up a few steps into the context before we even kind of like unpack these complex um, you know, representations of, of the brown body, if you will. Um, we're going to take a break, but before that, if people are listening, I am talking to Professor Lorenzo Perillo uh, about his new book called Choreographing in Color, and we're trying to unpack these kind of, um, yeah, complicated racialized bodies in the dance world and, 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 its, and its context historically. So when we come back, let's talk a little bit about the historical context that a lot of people don't know about on um, the Filipino-American experience, so don't go away. Welcome back. I am talking to Professor Lorenzo Perillo here about his new book, Choreographing in Color. And we are talking about the, um, we were just talking about the Filipino-American experience, you know, diasporic experience in context to the dance culture here and now. And maybe, um, maybe we can go a little bit backwards and talk about the historical context of the, you know, the colonial, post-colonial space and how that's kind of shaped uh, the way Filipino Americans are presented and represented today. Um, maybe you can share a little bit about the history of the Filipino history, you know, and I know it's so hard to put in a nutshell, but <laughs> do what you can. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, you know, um, there are probably multiple ways that you could historicize the relationship between Filipinos as brown, dan brown dancing bodies. Um, and um, I think for me, you know, my interest in this book was kind of filling a gap, um, because often when you read books about or you um, you hear about Filipino history, um, the relationship between Black culture and Filipino racialization is often erased or marginalized or um, on the periphery. And for me, especially when thinking about Filipinos in hip-hop dance, it's, it's central to that. And so really providing that historical context and starting with the Philippine-American War and how, um, you know, when, when the, the U.S. occupied the Philippines or um, even when the U.S., um, you know, in, in the institutionalization of dance itself in U.S. colonial education system in the Philippines, there were, you know, racial and gender um, and sexual sort of dimensions to that that were related to indigeneity, um, and Filipinoness and and blackness and you know one of the one of the political cartoons that I I feature in in my book um, is from the Boston Sunday Globe um, in 1899 and it, it it it's entitled Expansion Before and After and, and in that it has like panels of Filipinos uh, pre expansion and post expansion and sort of the understanding um, is that. Um, the U.S. imperial project is a benefit to the Filipino uh, people. And one of the quotes that in the captions, it depicts uh, from the war dance to the cakewalk is but a step. And so I really use that to show how um, the American imperial project used um, its pre-existing 
kind of formula of racialization to enfold Filipinos within sort of that um, the the logic of white supremacy. Um, and you can see throughout history, um, whether it be Filipinos in taxi dance halls um, and mobs of uh, assailants, um, you know, using the N word uh, to attack them and hunt them down in California, or whether it be um, other 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 examples within the um, within the especially within the education system. One thing that I actually focus on that kind of connects throughout some of the different parts of the book um, are how within the education system in the Philippines, um, the U.S. established dance in a physical education context. So whereas we see dance in the UH Manoa or in, in American context in uh, arts and humanities framework, it's in the College of Human Kinetics at the University of Philippines, Diliman. Um, the canonization of Philippine folk dance in the early 1920s by uh, Francisca uh, Reyes Tolentino happened within that physical education context. And so that already inscribes what dance can be, what the performing body can be thought of within a kinesthetic, I mean, within a calisthenic kind of um, kinesiological paradigm that hampers talking about race, gender, colonialism, because there's, that's not necessarily, that's not the, the logic that it's being taught in, right? It's being taught in this physical education paradigm. And so when we look at the differences between Filipino experiences and dance in the US or in the Philippines, we have to kind of see how that imperial, that colonial American colonial project has really shaped how Filipinos dance and how we think about dance. Is and, there a different, so, you know, from a transnational perspective, so people who are um, either have been brought up in the Philippines and if they had studied, you're saying that a lot of the schools have kind of like this um, ingrained the, the, the normality of dance and culture into education. It's not yeah. like some extracurricular thing, even though that is always a, a natural part of our socializing. Um, and then, but what does that do when that's brought over? So the generations who grew up here, like yourself, um, who didn't experience that Asian, um, you know, I don't want to use that word authentic, but cultural kind of um, influences from being from your native land. Um, is there a difference in the way you see your body? Because, you know, I think like for me, I grew up in Hong Kong. I never saw myself as racialized until I moved back to the States really for a long term. I didn't feel that race was an issue when you're surrounded by people of your same color, right? So as a Filipino American, um, do you feel, you know, this pressure of kind of like this, this extra layer of the racialized body that you need to work with on top of the cultural or the erasure of the cultural body that you also have to work with in America? Oh, yeah, I think so. I think um, there's really no way of getting around um, certain situations where you might feel the responsibility of your people <laughs> to represent um, your culture, right? Rather than do something avant-garde or do something deracialized or do something that has no relationship to 
um, you know, your particular cultural perspective. Um, but I think that's the, that's one of the binds that's so interesting to, to um, those, that's one of the dynamics when looking at Filipino American or Filipino diasporic cultural productions. That's one of the things that's so fascinating is to see how there are different pathways through and around those uh, predicaments um, that folks are taking. Uh, you know, like for instance, there were culture nights in the West Coast, but the Filipino communities that I worked with in Chicago had a completely different um, production that was a competitive across different schools. And so they were creating their own dances um, and choreographing their own dances, but they were also competing with other schools with them. And that's something that we would never do in California that that would see be seen as maybe off limits or too much or something, you know? And in Texas, there's completely um, a whole other thing called Good Phil and it has its own history. And I think it's really interesting because they're all, these community cultural productions are all very much kind of grounded in the immigration history of these Filipino communities and how they had to survive or create spaces alternative to, because there were no spaces in these institutions and in these uh, predominantly white institutions. Um, unlike, unlike in the Philippines where there are spaces, but they just don't necessarily address race or um, or, or empire or the colonial history in the way that they do in the, in the US. And so uh, for me, like one of the turning points was in the 1970s, right? During the Marcos era, when the Philippines increasingly began its um, you know, neoliberal development, trying to um, attract foreign capital and use, and you know, really using this idea of the beautification of, of Filipino, uh, of Filipino cities and the naturalized hospitality of Filipino women, uh, which again is a stereotype that was preserved in some of these dances. They have actual dances where, you know, um, they are gendered and they're serving they're serving wine or they're serving um, some kind of drink to the audience. And it's really sort of naturalizing this idea of hospitality. And I think this is something that overlaps with Pacific Islanders and um, and um, Native Hawaiian cultures is that sometimes um, that hospitality stereotype is really used to um, really used to uh, you know in in to sustain unequal power relations, right? Especially in in spaces of military and tourism or militarism. Um, and so, what's so fascinating is that we can trace how when these dances have been preserved, it creates a trope, right? Of a particular type of Filipina to the point where nowadays, like if you look at, um, you know, that, that trope is still uh, very much alive in terms of, um, and these are sort of the stereotypes that my book is trying to write against, like Filipinos as natural performers, Filipinos as um, mimics or heroic migrants or model minorities or subservient wives. And so really tracing the structural dynamics to, okay, why do we, why do we see, or what are some of the structural dynamics that led to what led to this stereotype being popular? Or why is there this understanding that Filipinos are everywhere and that that's a good thing, right? Or that migrate, emigrating from the Philippine, Philippines makes you a hero, right? There are actually state and market 
kind of ties and histories that we can uncover and focus on that help uh, reveal the kind of operations behind this stereotype. So it's not just put on the behavior um, of an individual for perpetuating it or put on the behavior of an individual for, for um, identifying it or reaffirming it, but actually it does relate to our, um, it does relate to our transnational and international relations of the Philippines trying to attract, um, you know, foreign capital and um, exporting uh, migrants as it's you know, number one export in the 70s. And then uh, penthouse dancers then found What's them. a penthouse dancer? Sorry. So there are these popular dancers in the 1970s who started out in um, on a television show, television show called Penthouse. Wow. And it, it's sort of like the soul train. I was just going to say, right. Okay. And so they, they were, uh, they participated in a lot of tours in the U S and um, you know, learned some of the dances um, from the U S and they were the ones that popularized locking. Oh. In, uh, but they did so in, uh, in a, it's sort of a, a, in a framework that was kind of upper, upper class or, you know, that, that sort of elevated it to, you know, the penthouse, right? Oh. And so they would sort of kind of project this notion of, of, uh, of class onto the dance um, in these shows in the 70s. And, you know, they also collaborated or were asked to perform at the palace um, by, by, uh, by Marcos and they received, uh, you know, they received uh, passes or to, to get out during curfew, during martial law. And so they were like literally given license to dance, huh. right? Others had to be under house, you know, in their houses during martial law. And wow. so that to me is such an interesting contradiction because here's locking as this um, emancipatory black dance form during the civil rights post-civil rights era, celebrating the representation of um, diversity on television, television, and it's being, you know, recontextualized in the, in the Philippines context um, in, in wildly different ways. Yeah, wait, okay, so there's a lot here. Um, you know, you've opened up this, this new knowledge. I've never heard of this before, but, you know, you, you mentioned terms like locking, which um, is, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, originated from black bodies in that form of dancing. But so here's the tension, right? There's, you know, you have, you're saying that, you know, there, there is a kind of Filipino dancing bodies. You have, there is a unique form of dancing that kind of like spills over with a lot of the complications of, of post-colonialism and, and oh, and everything else that is involves in shaping embodied kind of movement. But so, in, in referencing to today's hip hop, for example, you know, there's all these kind of conversations about who can, who has the right, who, who has the right to dance certain things, you know, like Thomas de France, who always asks who, who, you know, he's reclaiming black bodies saying this is a black thing, you have no right to do our thing. And, and so, you know, some things that might be seen as cultural appropriation are, are argued against, right? Can we talk a little bit about that tension between um, Afro-Filipino bodies and relationships between the two? Because it's just so push-pull and so interesting and so complicated. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, for me, I feel that, especially when thinking about the imperial 
or the colonial um, history between the Philippines and the U.S. and Filipino people, um, that cultural appropriation lacks the explanatory power to really grapple with Afro-Filipino um, formations, right? So the history of Negritos or the history of Black people's migration into the Philippines, the history of the Philippine-American War and the relationship between African-American soldiers and Filipinos, whether uh, and then the history of the Filipino-Americans in um, California or in the um, in the in in Hawaii, for instance, those those have such complicated and multi-dimensional kind of um, dynamics that I think cultural appropriation, while it's it's I think it's attractive to uh, a general kind of discussion, it doesn't necessarily get at those intersections. And when we talk about, you know, intersectionality, we're thinking about what falls through that gap, right? When we're thinking about the relationship between um, Filipino racialization and African-American uh, or African uh, or Black, Black racialization, and that sort of falls into a trap of seeing them as separate, right? Mm -hmm. That there are not Black Filipinos, that there are not um, Filipinos for Black Lives Matter, or there are not racial and sexual facets of Blackness and anti-Blackness at the heart of the, the Filipino racialization amidst the Philippine-American war, right? And so for me, like going, like each chapter of the book, I'm trying to sort of unravel and un uh, tease out some of these different threads that are woven together and sometimes overlooked or um, just re reduced or lumped together with, with that, with conversations about cultural appropriation, right? So for one, one example is that, uh, is migration, right? And so this idea that during the seventies was one of the initial exports of Filipino labor and the Filipino laboring body and gendered body became ubiquitous or um, helped develop emergent Asian economies right? Um, Filipinos in um, nightclubs in Japan uh, began, uh, you know, began popularizing uh, uh, in, uh, popular dance uh, to R&B or to New Jack swing songs, and um, they became stigmatized as, uh, you know, uh, Filipina entertainers or uh, Japayukis, and that took on a type of racialization um, that I think is, is, sort of, is, is sort of important to look at. So one thing that I found is that they were um, regulated by the Philippine Overseas uh, Employment Agency, right? So entertainers that were traveling to Japan um, on contracts um, were tested with, with, um, uh, with dancing before they before they uh, were able to accept contracts um, as what do you mean like they would have like audition kind of like yeah they had to have an audition and they had to learn uh, particular um, choreographies mm -hmm. um, and initially, um, you know initially it was it wasn't necessarily just any type of choreography but um, increasingly they began began um, they began testing in ballet and jazz even though they weren't doing ballet and jazz in the clubs or in Can the- Can I just say that I understand that the Filipino, uh, was it the, is it the 
company in Philippines, the Philippine Dance uh, Ballet Company is exceptional. Um, I, I, I just, you know, I just wanted to put that out there because people think, oh, Southeast Asian countries, you know, what is that with that? And just like in relation to classical dance and how that, I don't know how it moved over, but, you know, in Hong Kong, it's highly, highly um, uh, honored. They're, they're a very big presence in the, the, the dance world there too. And I just thought I'm going to throw that out there. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, you know, and so some of these, a lot of these, uh, like, uh, you know, Singapore, Japan, they, they recruited Filipino labor because they could speak English, right? Yeah. So that's well, Disneyland. It's like a huge one, right? So they're stereotyped as natural performing talents, naturally okay. hospitable, and then they, you know, they're serving crazy rich Asian audiences mm -hmm. to help develop these emerging Asian economies like Singapore, Hong Kong, Disney. Yeah. They took a lot, you know, a lot of the the dancers that I interviewed talked about that time when Hong Kong Disney took a lot of their, the most talented dancers in, in the scene. And um, so for me, like I would, I, I sort of developed this idea of uh, dance drain, right? So instead of brain drain, dance drain is when um, all of the talent, uh, all of the dance talent, choreographic talent. And for me, I was looking at popular dance and black dance forms like hip hop. Um, they were being, pulled away from the Philippines because the Philippine economy wasn't necessarily paying the same rate or providing lodging that um, Singapore Universal Studios could. Mm -hmm. um, and so some of the most famous dancers in the entertainment industry, like the street boys or um, some of these dancers that went to work as overseas Filipino workers in the Japanese um, entertainment world, they, you know, they were, they were big names in the Philippines, but then they were pulled away, um, producing this kind of vacuum um, that other other Filipinos then had to either fill in or that produced sort of uncertainty for different groups if they were the head of a particular crew or group. And, um, and so that's one stream or one facet, I think that we can't get at. And, you know, and this idea of like um, regulation through ballet and, uh, sort of is a kind of whitening of a yeah. stigmatized body, right? And so I think this, I, the, this, these kind of facets, I think, are, are more interesting to me than kind of the surface level conversation about appropriation. Absolutely. Another facet that's connected to this is that, you know, when I went to the Philippines to do my research, I, I talked to people and they were talking about, oh, I have to go do this contract in Singapore. I'll be gone for six months. So you can interview me after that. Or, oh, I'm working in Hong Kong or I'm going to Taiwan. And, you know, so there is that, that circulation of Filipino bodies um, that was sought after as cheap, cheap and desirable labor, right? And then there were other folks that were being petitioned by their family members for reunification, family reunification to Canada, to the US or to Australia. Um, and so those where they were following their families who had immigrated through employment, uh, but they were under a petition. And the Philippines has an exceptional long amount of wait time for processing this for the US. It was 22 years or 20 what? something. That's ridiculous. Yeah. So they were a petition. And during that petition, they're in this petition status. And that petition status then affected how they could qualify for visas to compete in the international hip hop stage in, in the US. So if they were, under a petition, they were seen as potential flight risks. Um, so they were, pro and there was a proximity to the 
uh, quote unquote, the undocumented body or the immigrant body that then um, kind of hampered their participation in the international hip hop um, scene, right? Even though they were world champions or even though they had, they had um, you know, trained for this many years, you know, um, like my, uh, I was seeing these different migrational patterns, right? There's a petition, I call them the petitionados. The petitionados on one hand were leaving the Philippines or were in a limbo between um, the Philippines and other uh, quote unquote global north sites. But, you know, they were heroes in the Philippines or they were world champions in the Philippines. And then they were migrating to these countries like the U.S., um, and facing sort of racial and sexual exclusion in um, in these in the entertainment industry because mm-hmm. the US entertainment industry is you know has historically and contemporary anti Asian. Right. <laughs> well, that's a whole other uh, ballpark we can like dig into. We haven't even <laughs> unpacked this one. But what you're saying is really interesting because we don't think about it. Like you say, we often critique dance on a very superficial, very um, through a white lens, very American lens. And what you're saying is we can't, you know, just even scratching the surface of of the the Filipino dancing body, you cannot talk, we can't talk about this without um, connecting it to colonialism, to the historical context of um, the military presence, of interracial relationships, of of immigration, of um, capitalism. Yeah. It's endless, right? So there's just so much to absorb right now. I'm going to let our audience take that in, take a little quick break when we come back. Um, I hope to unpack a little bit more of your book, uh, Choreographing in Color, because it's just digging into so many complex spaces. And to do that all through the dance body is brilliant. And I love it. So um, if you are just tuning in, please, please uh, continue listening. We are talking to Professor Lorenzo Perillo here with his new book, Choreographing in Color. We'll be back. Talking about choreographing in color. First of all, that title is just so intriguing. This is by Professor Lorenzo Perillo here, who with me is sharing um, this the 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 complications of the the Filipino dancing body and its connection to you know neoliberal uh, mechanisms and framings of brown body in context to so many different things. So I wanted to start this part by um, highlighting if everyone, maybe some of our listeners are too young to remember this, um, but there's that pivotal clip that came out um, from the Cebu uh, Prison Rehabilitation Center. Um, Dr. Perillo, maybe you can um, elaborate on this, but because I'm from coming from a performance studies perspective, it's a brilliant piece to unpack like what it means to perform brown bodies. What does it mean to perform the prison system? How does this particular dance clip of these prisoners um, doing this massively choreographed, brilliant um, performance of uh, Michael Jackson's thriller, what does that say and how is the world treating that? And what are the contexts that we need to kind of bring onto the table uh, referencing this this video? Great, thank you. That's such a great question. You know, a lot of way, in a lot of ways, this um, when this video came out, um, it was sort of a turning point in my project. You know, I talk about um, my upbringing and dance. And um, one of the things that kind of I reflect on is this, uh, 
I guess it's sort of a bittersweet kind of thing to see Filipinos achieve viral popularity um, with this with this video. You know, I grew up um, watching. Can you us what year it was? It was 2007. Okay. So this video was a 2007. Um, uh, in July 17, 1,500 inmates in the Cebu Provincial Detention and Rehabilitation Center uh, performed their rendition of uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller um, music video. So um, I was familiar with the music video, and I grew up watching, you know, um, Ernie Reyes Jr. and Dante Bosco and Lea Salonga and um, different Filipina and Filipina um, artists. Um, usually performing a racially ambiguous uh, version of themselves or um, performing other other racial um, racial identities. And so to see Filipinos in sort of this reality viral video phenomenon, um, I was both uh, really excited to see myself um, and also, or to see folks that I could identify with, but also really perplexed as to why why the popularity, what, what really was underlying the popularity. So I, I really kind of wanted to write and think through some of these things and kind of connect it to the uh, colonial history of the Filipino, uh, of, of Filipino dance, um, and also to the sort of the role of the Filipino body in, in the market or in, in, the, in representation. So, um, so for me, it really was kind of a way to get at um, explaining the phenomenon of Filipino dancing bodies that sets the tone for the rest of the chapters in the book that then kind of go deeper into each case about why the stereotypes of natural performance of mi mimicry that we see in the thriller video are so problematic. Um, and so in a lot of ways they were celebrated, you know, for being naturally, uh, you know, natural imitators or copycats of American colonial culture of the thriller dance. And so for, for me, I really wanted to take it to take the, take the video and analyze it um, and look at how, how was it operating as an argument for the efficiency of the rehabilitation program without really providing any proof of the rehabilitation program itself. Right. And so this idea that these um, uh, that the video was really kind of um, recontextualizing the African-American original of uh, Michael Jackson's thriller and his own identity, um, his, uh, his own sort of a place in American and global culture. Um, I think I, I grounded it also in the ways that the, the zombie body was uh, was counterposed amidst the with the central inverted pyramid um, choreography, right? The rigid uh, uniformity uh, that the the central dance takes on kind of became this. It became the binary between linearity um, and chaos, or order and chaos, and so that was sort of on the surface, some of the mechanics, and then also the video, you know, being poised at the, at the second floor of the prison, positioned us as the viewers, as sort of, uh, as, 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 part, as guards, basically. Right, on top. Um, as, right. From, from the incarcerated. And so I think a lot of these dynamics that were, that are in the technical aspects, they, they are, you know, they're haunted by the uh, imperial 
um, relationship between the Philippines or the Afro-Filipino formations in, in the U.S. Philippine kind of history, right? And so it kind of harkens back to the, the idea that, you know, dance is seen as a physical, uh, a physical activity rather than a traumatic or a um, critical race activity, right? So to see it as only aerobic, um, physically disciplining means that we can overlook whether there are any therapeutic or any, um, you know, psychological kind of actual, actual labor being work, being, being done in this rehabilitation process, right? Do you or think that, we- that there's that kind of a white savior perspective on this where, you know, when this is presented to the world, it's like, we think, oh, well, that's so great. They get to come out and dance and enjoy their bodies and they get a chance to have representation outside the, the you know, the restrictions of, of the prison or that um, we're giving them space to, you know, to, to, to present something, you know? And without problematizing it. Yes, exactly. Right. So, so if it sort of blurs the line between, I say, physical discipline and social discipline, mm-hmm. right? And so, this idea of that blurred line, it allows us to feel comfortable and okay with our complicity mm-hmm. with with that type of incarceration or with that type of exploitation. Because you know, when we look at the details, a lot of the prisoners were not necessarily, did not have trial yet, or were not necessarily, you know, like there, um, there are some lines being blurred again, when you, when you look at the interviews, they say they weren't forced to dance, right? And so I think that was a great kind of way into really thinking about um, what is it about the Filipino dancing body as, you know, as a natural mimic, um, and then how can we unravel the, the structural dynamics that then take it out of this um, only representational or only behavioral kind of understanding or only physical education understanding, right? And so after that, I, I look at the, the migration, like as I spoke of the migration of Filipino um, dancers to uh, to other parts of Asia or to um, Canada and the U.S. and how Filipino dancers have to make um, make some decisions um, going from hero to zero and sort of downward migration um, within their their career, but um, make sort of that kind of contradiction um, with Filipino migration and labor and and kind of relating it to the the development of global capital, the development of Philippines, really, because, I mean, there was a time, um, I have the, the number down from in Japan when over the 90s, there was a, you know, there were tens of thousands of, of migrants um, that were, okay, in, you know, according to the Filipino Overseas Employment Administration, 435,824 Filipino dance emigrants were deployed from 92 to 2010. And that's, that's that 18 year span is roughly the same as the population of present day Atlanta. And I think people don't really know that, um, you know, when we think of dancers, we don't think of them as workers or as migrants, but um, they, they, they can be, you know, and, 
Um, in 94 alone, 47,000 choreographers and dancers emigrated the Philippines, right? And so I think this, like those structural dynamics of, of immigration and emigration are really important to kind of explain um, the current state of Filipino dance or the current state of dance in the world, really. Um, and then after that, I look at uh, PCNs and this PCN that removed all traditional dance from it and choreographed new dances in relationship to Filipino American history, because those traditional dances didn't necessarily speak directly to the plantation laborers in Hawaii or the asparagus farmers in California or the cannery workers in Alaska. Um, and so Filipino American diasporics in, in Berkeley wanted to create new dances that could articulate their history. Um, and I look at that in relationship to liberal multiculturalism and affirmative action um, and how uh, you know, and how the body, the affirmative body is the one that can be legible to the state. But right? do you see these affirmative bodies, these this new progressive kind of modern adaptations of, of dance, new forms of dance now, are they shifting away from, you know, the cultural context that you had mentioned, you know, that, that kind of connect us to historical um, um, context or, and, and bringing in a more kind of a, an American story to the body or no no i don't i don't necessarily see it as like a, a dichotomy between uh, between the two i see it i see it more it's it's very fluid so it's you know in one year it might be radical and the next year it might go back to the way that it's been done it really depends on the community especially with those community oriented kind of um, spaces like PCNs. For me, like what was interesting is trying to kind of look at these different, these different examples and see how the dancers and the choreographers were generating theory, right? So generating ideas and theories around the ability to perform identity that isn't so dichotomous as they're either recuperating a pre-colonial tradition or assimilating to a white, a white um, telos, right? So for them, you know, performing the zombie or performing the robot in PCNs, or um, doesn't necessarily read as either pre-colonial or assimilationist, right? And so for me, with like the challenge and the uh, the joy was really trying to find new language to articulate this, you know, and I, I kind of landed on uh, the euphemism. You know, the euphemism as a theory of performing um, that both, you know, plays with the code, but also uh, refuses it or resists it. Um, you know, it kind of speaks to hip hop in a way um, that we bleep out words, right? But we know what the bleep is referring to. So there's those two things, but at the same time, the bleep is also creating a new thing, a new moment, a new opening. Right. Um, really, you know, it spoke to me when uh, my, my cousins in the Philippines were making fun of my English and they were saying that they had a nosebleed, you know, it's sort of a dark comic joke. Like your English is causing my nose to bleed. And huh. so I recognized it as a way of them. It wasn't a harsh 
like real resisting the imperialism of English language. It was more, it was a very embodied joke kind of criticism that used the normative codes of the body of, you know, you, you normally know, don't. You know what the <laughs> nosebleed joke is in Hong Kong though? It's completely oh. different. It's like if somebody, usually a male, if you have a nosebleed, it means that you're thinking dirty thoughts too much. And so you have a nosebleed. Oh, wow. <laughs> so again, culturally, things are specific and, they, you know, and, and very contextual. So, um, you know, going back to, you know, I want to leave our listeners with kind of like what the scene is today. What is the modern kind of like Filipino dancing body space now? Are there carved new spaces? Is it something that's kind of like um, reaching to new audiences? Is there is there even an intention in that? Or is it something that is, you know, within the culture to preserve it and to 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 celebrate that within their own culture and like where where do you see it going and how do people create and carve new spaces to 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 create new voice and work yeah you know i think this goes back to what we were talking about before about the lack of resources in u.s institutions for critical filipino dance studies or filipinx dance studies right so whereas in the philippines they have at least within the physical education system, there are multiple spaces for um, for folks to dance and it's not seen as extracurricular or extra credit. In the US, if you look at, let's say in the gender, the gender and women's studies departments or the ethnic studies departments, you know, the Third World Liberation Fund um, movement fought for indigenous knowledge and recuperating um, black indigenous people of color knowledges. And for the most part, ethnic studies departments don't have a core core requirement of dance. They don't have necessarily a core requirement of performance, right? And then if we look on the other end of that, in theater and dance departments, there aren't necessarily core requirements for Filipino dance or even native Hawaiian dance in multiple theater and dance departments across the US, right? So I think the move right now is to really look at these spaces of opportunity um, and now as, as emergent scholars in dance or in critical ethnic studies or race studies or gender studies um, argue for the relate the you know the centrality of performance and, and embodied knowledge um, as central to understanding our our identities I think that's that's really where we're at right now I, I know there are a couple of new um, faculty Filipino Filipinx faculty that are choreographers and and dancers. And I think that's great. And I think the more spaces that we can create, um, the more, the less burden they will have on these, you know, student groups to do all of that, all yeah. of that cultural labor, right? Yeah, what you're suggesting is really kind of the desperate lack of diversity and inclusivity uh, of recognizing these different um, spaces as a part of, um, um, you know, American education here. And, um, you know, you just mentioning a couple of departments, I'm thinking like gender, you know, like for the women, gender and sexuality studies department, they've recently kind of trying to push this new, really interesting trans studies certificate, right? Um, and, and that's just like, 
what is progress like just you know how do how far do we need to go to kind of normalize certain conversations and i wanted just just to add that little aspect of gender into the filipino dancing body conversation before we let you go um is how do we complicate the narrative um adding in the kind of the gendered roles because uh, you did mention that earlier about the kind of domestic gendered roles from like traditional cultural dances but like in today's world right when when gender is consistently and increasingly being blurred how do we add that conversation in and how do you want the audience to to leave with with these thoughts on the the the, the um asian dancing body if you will yeah that's such a great question and i think we have it's it's really our responsibility to constantly push to have that at the start right and so in in my analysis of the the thriller uh dancing video you know at the center the quote-unquote damsel in distress yeah is a cross-dressed Philippine Penex body, right? And so, so it really, it's not new. It's just, um, we have to be more critical in the framing and in our, in our analyses to, to be more inclusive to all people, um, for, for the benefit of all people, really. It's, 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 it's so important to do so. Yeah, but how? I mean, so we can open up that critical analysis to look at how we see bodies, but what are some steps you think, in your opinion, like even in your power, <laughs> you teach, uh, I believe you teach a global perspectives on dance, right? So how would you incorporate the gender element into kind of understanding uh, international dancing bodies? Mm, that's a great question. I think, well, again, you know, gender isn't universal in terms of understandings of it so i think it would be specific like for me one of the things that really helps is kind of that one-on-one -on -one communication um like i was inspired to do this work by my own american studies professor right and she she was one of the only um, black women professors at, at berkeley who told me you know i could see you doing this um and that just stuck with me right and so i think just having those conversations and reaffirming um, folks' voices, um, I think that is one way that I've, I've found um, an impact in the educational system is, is kind of when we can see someone, um, someone's potentials to reaffirm it. It doesn't take a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, and, and we all have dancing bodies. You talked about it in the beginning of our conversation about just growing up dancing in family social gatherings. And it's so innate, so natural. I was just thinking like sometimes at our house, my my boys, my sons go off and do these really obnoxious, like trying to hip hop type moves with no dance background. But it's like, why does your body feel compelled to move? You know, and there is such a freedom of expression in it. And we, and we just, um, it gets so dismissed, especially in the education um, kind of platform, because we don't see that as a way of thinking, a way of knowing, right? A, a, a way exactly. of embodying knowledge. And then the other aspect of that is, if it is seen as a way of knowing, it's only within a paradigm of virtuosity, right? Mm -hmm. So it's only in the paradigm that you are the most, let's say, flexible for the market, right? You can perform multiple genres and you can compete at a particular level that will then bring, you know, bring in capital to a particular production. And we're, we're trying to get at, and I think what we're both kind of talking about here is that there's so much more, there are so much more um, 
there's so much more meaning and purpose to performance um, that that we have yet to tap into. I mean, that's Absolutely. there. Yeah, communities recognize and communities have often recognized, but that art institutions have not yet uh, have have failed to recognize. To be recognized. yeah, yeah. So again, this is just the tip of the iceberg, and I really appreciate. Um, you being able to share the the a little bit of your book and um if people wanted to have access are, is it out in the bookstores um can you tell us where to get it yeah the best place to go to um check out my book or to access different um other other kind of articles and publications is uh, my website at www.choreographingandcolor.com that's great. So that's Professor Lorenzo Perillo with his book, Choreographing in Color. Thank you so much for illuminating us with the ideas of the dancing body. Uh, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Professor.